Well, good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. And let me just be the first to congratulate you. You've made it to the end of the month. This is the last one I promise you that you have to put up with one of the staff members preaching. But I'm here this morning uh, to do that, and I'm honored to do that, as always. Uh, my name is Brian Claberg. If you don't know, uh, I serve on staff as the worship pastor that's over the modern services. And each week I, I have the privilege, the honor of leading us in, in the musical aspect of worship. And today I have uh, the, the privilege of leading us in another aspect of worship through the teaching and the preaching of the word. Uh, something that I really love to do. Uh, but I assure you, next week, pastor will be back in the pulpit uh, as he begins his new series uh, called The One, which will be his Christmas series. We're really looking forward to next month and just really want to encourage you uh, to be a part of everything that we have going on next month. Uh, we have so many uh, awesome things in, in, in plan, uh, planned and in store uh, for you. Don't miss a single week. Uh, I promise you, you'll enjoy it. Um, but he will start next week uh, his Christmas series, The One, as we look at that origin story of the incarnation and Jesus coming um, to this world through that baby boy. And so before we do that, as sort of a way to to kind of maybe set our minds and our mentality toward that, uh, I want to look at uh, this morning another origin story. Uh, in fact, the original origin story, which was the creation of man and the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. And I know that this is uh, somewhat of a familiar uh, story and passage for most of us, but I just think there are a lot of things that we can gain new perspectives on and some misconceptions that we could go over. And so we're going to be looking, what I want to do is look at the garden account and specifically within the garden in creation, there are two trees that are mentioned there. And that's kind of what I want to hone in on a little bit. And so this morning we're going to talk about a tale of two trees uh, from Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to kind of start right in the middle of Genesis 2. But before we jump in there, let me just set it up and give you a little, little bit of context. So in Genesis chapter 1, um, we get an overview of the creation account. How God creates everything in six days and he rests on the seventh. Uh, and then in Genesis chapter 2, what Moses, who is the author of Genesis, is going to do is he's going to back up to day 6 and give a more detailed account of what happened in day 6. So chapter 1 is just a, a, a large overview, a flyby of the creation account. Chapter 2, he's going to back up into day 6, and he's going to give us a more specific and detailed account of what happened on that sixth day when he creates all the living creatures and when he creates the climax of his creation, which is his image bearers, which is humanity. And so that's where we're jumping in, and we're going to be looking um, at Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to be starting in verse number 8. So without further ado, let's just jump right in. Here's what it says. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he, he put the man whom he had formed. So God creates all of the world. He creates everything, but then he creates something else. He creates this garden. Now, this is not the world that God created. It's a, it's a specific place within his creation. It's a new environment. He creates this garden. And what we know about the garden is that this garden was just rich and lush. It, had, it was this paradise that he created, had all of his provision in this garden. And he creates this garden for Adam and for Eve and for hum humanity to, to dwell and to live forever in this paradise. And what I want us to see uh, right off the bat is the creation of the garden really shows us something about the character of God and how he feels about us, his image bearers. Because from the beginning, here's what we're going to see. And here's the first point that I want us to go after. The Garden of Eden represents God's lavish provision for his creation. I mean, right from the very beginning, 
We see that God is a God who longs to provide for us. And not just to provide for us, but, but to provide for us in really lavish ways. He creates this rich, lavish garden for Adam and Eve. And so we see right off the bat that God is a God who provides. He is a God of provision. Then in verse 9, here's what it says. Let's go on. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he brings, God brings all of the best of his creation into this environment in the garden of Eden. He's but the best trees, the best fruits, the best environment possible. It is a paradise. He is set up for Adam. And there are, there is everything he needs there. It also says that there are these two trees right in the midst, perhaps right in the center of the garden. You have the tree of life and you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's what I kind of want to focus in on a little bit this morning is these two trees. What is the point of these two trees? Why are they there? Why are they necessary? And so in order to kind of gain some more understanding about the tree specifically, let me skip down now to verse 15. Here's what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here we have, um, God creates these two trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're there in the garden. And what I want, uh, what I want you to see is that um, he tells Adam that you are going to go into this garden and you're going to work it. You're going to cultivate it. You're going to work the ground. You're going to have a job to do there in the garden. Now, we need to understand that this is before sin has entered the picture. This is before um, sin is there and all of the results of sin. So this work that Adam is doing in the garden, we need to understand that this work is not toilsome. Uh, it is not difficult. It is not a struggle. There is no sin involved. It's actually a pleasing type of work, a fulfilling type of work that, that uh, Adam is told to do here. And what this shows us, I think, is that there is an importance upon our work, upon our vocation, upon the things that we do. From the beginning, we see that work is important to God. But we know on this side of the fall that Work is sometimes a struggle. It is sometimes difficult. It is toilsome. But we, we see from the very beginning that work and what you do is a part of being an image bearer. And not only that, but from Revelation and Isaiah and other places in Scripture, we see that one day in glory, in heaven, those who are in Christ, we will have a job to do once again. We will have work that we will do. Uh, listen, we're not going to be sitting in a holy hammock for all of eternity. We're going to have things that we're going to be doing. But here's the beauty of that. This work that we're going to be doing one day in glory will be like it was in the original sense. What God intended for it to be, it will be free of anxiety, free of stress, free of toil and pain and suffering. I mean, can you imagine working and it not cause you any exertion at all? Working and doing things and it not be draining any energy at all? I mean, well, this is, this is sort of what pastor does, right? <laughs> I mean, technically he works here, but the staff really does everything. 
I mean, right now I'm doing his job for him. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, listen, I, I, I've had a year of, uh, I've been a while since I've preached and I've had to sit up here and listen to a lot of comments about my hair, about the way I dress, uh, about my musical abilities, uh, about my children. Well, that one makes sense. Um, I got to take my shots where I can get them, you know, so. But can you imagine, this is what it was like for Adam. It was free of all of those things, and he was just there in this paradise. He was just working the ground, free of toil and stress, and it was a very fulfilling job for him. But then we get the first commandment of God in verse 16, and here's what it says. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, here's the important thing. I think what we tend to do in situations like this is, is immediately go to the negative. I don't want you to first see the prohibition to refrain from the tree of knowledge as the first thing that you see. There is something that happens before that. And it's that God gives permission for everything else. Don't forget that. God says, look, look what I've created for you, Adam. Look at this environment that you have to live and to work and everything is yours. Go crazy. Enjoy. Eat it all. In fact, he says, here's this tree of life and you're free to eat of this tree of life. Don't get caught up just on the prohibition. Think about all that God has given to him first and foremost. So first there's this tree of life. And what does that mean? And what does that represent? And why is that there? And here's what I want you to notice about the tree of life. Here's the next point. The tree of life represents the fullness of eternal life that God wishes to lavish upon humanity. Just like the creation of the garden itself shows us that God is a God who wants to provide for us. The creation of the tree of life shows us that he wants his goodness and his provision to be experienced for all of eternity. I mean, this should show us the love and the grace of our God. That he wants to provide for us, that he's a God of provision, and that he wants that provision to be everlasting. But yes, there is a second tree. And it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here the plot thickens, right? Because God says, Adam, under no circumstance are you to eat of the fruit of this tree. I think when we, uh, when we think about this story, I think a lot of times people want to just think that one of the, the, the difficulties people have with this story is they think God set them up for failure. Like as if God walks Adam into this, the garden there like he's a little child and says, hey, Adam, see that tree? No, no. And then walks off and just leaves him like that. Uh, last week, I was at Disney World with my family, a vacation we had planned for some time. Um, so at the end of the service, I'll be taking a special offering to help pay for it because <clears throat> I'm broke. Just kidding. But seriously, go fund me. Uh, look it up. Um, but there was one moment at, at Disney World where I'm with my older girls and we're in, we're in line for a ride and it's kind of a long ride. We're a little tired. We're a little annoyed. Uh, I'm broke, so I'm already annoyed. And we're, we're in this line. We come around this corner, this one part in the, in the line, and there's this big glass wall in front of us. And you can see through it to the other side, and the right is over there. And so you kind of think, oh, I'm close to the right, even though you go into three or more rooms before you actually get there. But you see the ride, and the glass is kind of lit up. It looks cool. Um, but the first thing you notice is kind of the end of the day. 
And, the, and, and because that glass is lit up, what you notice immediately is every touch mark on that glass. I mean, every fingerprint, here's someone did something, I don't know what that kind of print is, someone put their cheek right there, someone's rubbed something right there. I mean, it, if you're a germaphobe, you would have just shuddered when you saw this. Because the light just illuminated, you could see every imperfection, every smudge mark. So, in my awesome parenting skills, I, I look at my girls and I say, girls, don't touch the glass. Now, I guess you could probably guess what's going to happen next. Because my middle child, without any hesitation at all, does not skip a beat, looks me right in the eye, laughs, and puts her finger on the glass. <laughs> and I'm too tired and broke at that point to care. I'm just like, whatever, just deal with it later. Um, but I think that this is how a lot of people view what God has done with Adam. Like he sets them up for failure. Here, look at this awesome tree. Don't touch it. Bye-bye. That's not what God does. Now, maybe back to the Disney example, if I would have been a better parent in that moment, maybe uh, what I could, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but maybe what I could have done is say, hey, girls, do you see that glass? Do you see how you can see everything on that glass? It's the end of the day. Thousands of people have come through. They're all touched it. If you touch that, you know, those germs could get on your hands. And you could maybe rub your eyes and you could, you could get sick. And listen to me, daddy's paid too much money for you to get sick on this trip, right? <clears throat> maybe that would have been a better way to handle the situation, I don't know. Um, because a lot of people think, well, what if I wouldn't have said anything at all? Would they have touched the glass? Maybe, maybe not. I kind of think they would have licked the glass. <laughs> But you never know. I thought the better example was just to point it out. But had I really gone over all of the consequences of their decision to touch the glass, maybe that would have changed the mentality. This is exactly what God does with Adam and Eve. He says, listen to me. First and foremost, all of this is yours. Everything here, I've, I've given to you. Enjoy it. Including this tree of life that will give you everlasting life. But do you see this tree? Listen, here's the consequence if you eat this tree. So don't do that. He does not set them up for failure. If anything, he sets them up for success because he lays out everything before them. This is all yours, and here's the consequence of going after this tree. He doesn't just leave it up to them. And the tree of life represents the fullness of God and his provision, wanting it to be everlasting. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is different. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the tree of knowledge. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that the tree is bad or that it's evil or, or somehow produces evil. And that's not correct. We know it's not bad because why? Because God created it. And everything he creates is good, including the tree of knowledge. It is a good thing. Now, eating of it was bad, but the tree itself was good. Also, I think there's this misconception that the fruit was somehow bad, like it was poisonous. Like if you ate of the fruit, it, it somehow infected you with sin. And that's not the case. There's nothing evil about this tree because that would be almost borderline heresy because God is not the author of evil. 
God is not the one who's responsible for evil in the world. He never brings about evil. It is not his responsibility. Evil has always come as a result of disobedience. When Satan fell as the archangel, it was because of his disobedience. And it was him who introduces this idea of disobedience into the world, as we will see in a minute. God is not responsible for evil. So what then is the big deal? Why are they told they must not eat of the fruit of this tree of knowledge? And here's what I want you to understand, the next point. By eating of the tree of knowledge, humanity was gaining awareness and authority in matters of good and evil. Humanity would be gaining a perspective, an awareness of, and authority in matters of good and evil. It was not just something simply to be avoided, like because God said so. You ever done that as a parent? No rhyme or reason just because I said so. Just sheer authority, that's it. No reason. That's not the reason. It's not just something to be avoided. There is a real reason for it. God points it out to them. And the reason is because they will be gaining a perspective that they are not ready to have. I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve have only known goodness. It's all they've known. The goodness of God, the provision of God. And to now throw in the mix of evil would give them a perspective that they cannot handle. Because what it would do is it would be, it would be a skewed view of judgment. A skewed view of of good and evil that would fall not on God on what he thinks, but on what they think. Uh, not on God's judgment, but on their judgment. Because after the fall, when, when sin enters into the picture, this judgment, this perspective, this knowledge will no longer originate from God, but it will originate from where? The sinful self. That's where it originates from. And the result is a sinful, selfish view of knowledge and judgment that is left up to the individual to determine. And it's like Judges and Romans and Deuteronomy all proclaim, we have become a law unto ourselves. Each of us does what is right in our own eyes. Because of sinfulness, we look inward instead of outward. That's what Adam and Eve did upon their first sin. They looked inward at their nakedness instead of outward. And this judgment and this authority is only reserved for God. It's not meant for them. I mean, is this not one of the greatest sins of our society? This is moral relativism. And we talk about this all the time. Moral relativism says, I have my truth and you have your truth. My truth is truth for me, but it may not be truth for you. Your truth is your truth, but don't put your truth on me. And moral relativism will say there is no absolute truth. And it's left up to the individual to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And that's the result. And this is exactly what the enemy wants to see play out. As he introduces this idea, let's look at it in Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I want you to notice how Satan attacks the truth here, how he twists it, how he manipulates it. He says, to, he says to Eve and Adam who's with her, did God really say that? Is that really what he meant? Let's talk about what God said. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's debate it a little bit. Let's weigh it back and forth. Is that what he meant? And he twists this truth. And he goes on to say in verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And there's the key. Did you see it? You will be like God. And this is one of the greatest sins that most people will not ever get over in their disbelief is because I want to be the God of my own life. I do not want to be held accountable to anyone or anything. People may say they have all kinds of reasons for disbelief. Oh, I don't believe because of this or this or whatever. But I guarantee you, if you trace back most of those things, what it will come down to is I don't want to be held accountable. And that's what happens. So the real question then, and here's where it gets more complicated, is why is the tree of knowledge even there? Like, <laughs> you'd think if God would have just left the tree, that part out of the story, it would have saved a lot of trouble, right? Like, why even have the tree of knowledge there in the first place? And this is a, a difficult one, but one that we need to understand. And so here's what I want you to see. Next point. In order to have the ability to love God, there must also be the ability to disobey God. In order to have the ability to love and to worship God, there must be the ability to disobey Him. We can't truly love Him, we can't truly worship Him, unless there's some way for us to show it. And Adam and Eve, they showed their love and their worship of God every day in the garden by their obedience by just doing what God had set forth for them to do. And if there was not the opportunity for them to disobey through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their love would not be genuine and it would not be real. Their worship would not be genuine and it would not be real. Now, this should not be mistaken for free will. It's not, I hear oftentimes a lot of people say that they want to just kind of, it seems to be like an easy way out of this example. Well, God just created man with free will, the free will to choose him or to reject him. And that is not the case. Now, what we do have is we don't have free will, but we do have freedom. And pastor talks about this all the time. Because the idea of free will, uh, to me, is a cop-out answer because it completely takes out the sovereignty of God. It completely takes out God's power over salvation. Now, I understand when most people talk about the concept of free will, I understand what they're saying. I understand what they're trying to get across. But the terminology still, I think, is, is incomplete. And I think we need to be careful when we use it because the term free will carries with it the idea that there are no limitations to your choice. I mean, that's what free will is. It's the, it's the will to freely exercise your will. 
And you and I know that we both have limitations, right? We know that. I can't just do whatever I want and choose whatever I want free of limitations and free of consequences. Because here's the reality. Get this. If we have free will with no limitations, then we have the ability to choose our own moral standard. And God is the only one with free will. God is the only one who has the right to freely exercise his will. Because guess, if we have the, if we have the ability to choose our own moral standards, what's that going to lead to? Moral relativism. It's going to be up to us. No, I, I am the determining factor. Now, freedom is different. Freedom is the ability to choose, but within your limitations. One example that we could, we could gain from this, I heard Pastor talk about this um, recently, is a prisoner in a jail cell. Now that prisoner um, has a type of freedom. They're free to do whatever they want in their 10 by 10 space. Okay? But that freedom is limited. That freedom is more limited than my freedom or yours. There is a limit upon their freedom. But they still have freedom within their limitations. And Adam and Eve didn't have free will, just like you and I don't have free will. But they did have freedom. They had the freedom to choose within their limitations, one of which being the tree of knowledge. And God is sovereign. And because of that, there will always be a limitation to your choice. But it is still your choice and your responsibility. And Eve and Adam with her, they make their choice. The enemy comes in with this deceit and convinces them that they will be like God. And they take of the fruit and they eat. And in an instant, their innocence is stripped from them. And they are aware of their sin. And the result, as we know it, is catastrophic. And the consequence is also catastrophic. Look at the consequence. Here it is in Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So the result of their disobedience is they are exiled out of the garden. And the entrance is sealed. And again, a lot of skeptics will say, look, look how unloving God is. Look how unjust God is. They weren't even tempted by God, as, as Christians would claim, but God yet kicks them out of the garden. I don't want to serve a God like that. And they've completely missed the story. Because think about it. They have now been introduced to sin and all that sin brings with it of decay and sorrow and grief and difficulty and pain and struggle. And if they were to remain in the garden, what would they do? They'd eat of the tree of life and they would live forever in their state of sin. It is not unloving or unjust that God exiles them from the garden. If anything else, it is a just, loving act of mercy because he does not want them to live forever in their sin. He wants there to be an end to it. And so he exiles them out of the garden. 
And here's what I'm hoping we will see from this story. Here's what I see from it, as, as I've said, as I was kind of just looking through this and studying it, as I see the garden as this great picture of God's provision for us. Not any normal provision, a lavish provision. That from the beginning, we see God as a God who provides. And we see not only that, but we see from the tree of life that God wants this provision and this joy to be experienced with us as believers for all of eternity. And we also see from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God wants to be worshipped and we do that through our obedience. But then sin enters the picture and it shatters the whole thing. And we are lost. But thank God he is still the same God that wants to provide for us in lavish ways and he will do so once again. And God provides for us once again a lavish provision that will last for eternity. And he does this through his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, this is what we're getting ready to celebrate all of next month. Is Jesus Christ coming into the broken world that we have made through our sin to redeem us in spite of us. And not only that, but to redeem us to an everlasting redemption. Because that's not where the story ends because there's a third tree and there's a second Adam. And that third tree will be the tree of the cross that Jesus Christ will die on for your sins and for mine. Because of his lavish provision, he will give the ultimate provision of his son, his only son. And as Romans and Corinthians all state, he is also the second Adam. And just like that first Adam comes and brings with one act of disobedience, sin into the entire world, Jesus Christ being the second Adam through one act of righteousness brings salvation to the entire world. This is God's lavish provision for us, in spite of us. And so the last point that I want us to see is this, from the garden to glory, God has always provided a way for us. God's divine love is ultimately provided for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so my hope for you, if you're a believer, is that as you get ready to enter into the Christmas season, maybe you would have a fresh perspective of God's provision for you. Lavish provision for you by sending Jesus Christ. And that you would understand this provision in a deeper level, and if you are not a follower of Christ, that you would see that Jesus Christ is the tree of life, and that you have the ability to taste and see that he is good, and he can save you from your sins. Everlasting. And in just a moment, we're going to have a time of response as we always do, and some of us will be up here in the front if you'd like to come and pray with us to talk with us about what, what it looks like to give your life to Jesus Christ. We would love to do that. You don't have to come forward to accept Jesus Christ. You can do that where you're seated or if you're watching online, but we would love to talk to you about that. Or if you just would like to pray about anything, we would love to do that. You can join the church during this time, whatever you need to do. But let's walk into this season of celebration of the Incarnation. Understanding God loves us so radically that he would provide for us once again this tree of life in Jesus Christ. And let's worship him by our obedience to that.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your provision and for your love. Father, that we do not deserve. And even in our disobedience, you still lavish that provision upon us. And you've displayed that provision in such a glorious way that we cannot ignore it. Because you've given your only son, Jesus Christ, to be that provision and to be that everlasting life once again. And so with hearts full of gratitude, we give you glory and honor and praise and we love you and we thank you. And all the glory is yours in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond.